When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is sponsored by Kaplan Medical. If you head over to captest.com and use the offer code ITB15, you can get 15% off any Kaplan Medical product. And importantly, for AMA members, you can combine this discount with your AMA membership for a total of 40% off. So that is a pretty sweet deal. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. Today, an interesting discussion with Dr. Chris Semino, Vice President of Kaplan Medical and their Chief Medical Officer where we deconstruct a question related to ethics and get a little bit into the item or question construction and approval process, kind of how like exam questions are made, how the exam is analyzed. And this episode, we really get into the mind of a question writer. And over on the Inside the Board's Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1, and Comlex Level 1, listen for our Kaplan Test Prep Minutes, which offer practical advice on study, examination strategy, and many of the questions you may be wondering as a medical student or resident preparing for your boards. You can find the Inside the Board Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. Just search your favorite podcatcher or look at the show notes for this episode to find that content. And truly, even though these segments are on our Step 1 Study Smarter series, the advice offered by Dr. Semino is applicable across all levels. So it's still worth listening to, even if you are a third-year, fourth-year medical student, or maybe a resident who hasn't yet taken Step 3. All right, we ask you sometimes to help us get the word out on this podcast. If you would like to get access to the All Audio Q Bank which admittedly still is kind of in beta mode, but is the only thing out there that is an audio-only resource to help you study for the boards on the go, you can become an ITB ambassador. You have to sign up by May 1st. Just check the show notes for the link. If you do simple task for us to help get the word out, we will give you access to our All Audio QBank. Welcome back to the ITB podcast. Uh, today we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Chris Semino. He is just a fascinating individual with lots of experiences relevant to our audience. Just I'll go ahead and list a few. He's currently the vice president and chief medical officer for Kaplan Medical. Um, I think everybody knows Kaplan is big into test prep. Before taking on that role in 2014, he was the Associate Dean for Student Affairs at New York Medical College. 
and among many other experiences, has also served on item writing committees for the National Board of Medical Examiners. He is a board-certified neurologist and clinical informaticist, I suppose. And the kind of list of achievements and uh, areas of expertise goes on and on. Did I mention or fail to mention anything that you're especially proud of that you want to be known for? Uh, that I've, I've set up my own web servers and, and done that kind of thing, messing around with on the computer technology side of things. Okay. Well then let's start. So you, you are somewhat of a polymath. It looks like with diverse interests. Uh, I am too. What are you currently learning? What are your learning? Uh, interests uh, well, now, I've, I've only been at Kaplan for a little over three years and I've started reading business books for the first time in my life, which is it's interesting. I mean, my my first month here, one of the people uh, who sort of got me started and, and got my feet wet, he said, all business books are the same. Everything they have to say is in the first chapter. And then every other chapter is just sort of like an amplification of that. Um, so I've actually managed to find some business books that are not like that. I think one of my favorites is actually a computer slash business book, which is The Mythical Man Month. Uh, which really talks about how large projects can go wrong and how they can, uh, the more complex you get, the more things slow down, in fact, when you add more people to the project. Hmm. Very interesting. I bet that has a lot of crossover relevance for uh, what you do at uh, Kaplan. Certainly. At least yeah. potential. I was telling you before that uh, with each episode, we tend to start with sort of a, a didactic portion, and you have sent me an example of a sort of step two, but I bet somewhat step one relevant question within my favorite subject, ethics communication. So then I'll just go ahead and read the stem. A 27-year-old office manager with a history of generalized anxiety disorder has had multiple visits in the recent past out of concern for persistent fatigue. Physical examination is within normal limits, and a serum thyroid stimulating hormone level is 2.3. She was diagnosed at her last visit with a major depressive episode, but at the current visit expresses frustration that a medical etiology for her fatigue has not been identified, and she demands to see the notes from her prior office visits. Which of the following is the most appropriate response the physician could make? And the answer choices here are A. Agree to show her the records only after she undergoes treatment for her depression. B. Attempt to arrange to review her clinical records with her as soon as possible. C. Explain to her that the physician-patient confidentiality prohibits her from seeing her medical record. Or D. Immediately make copies of her medical record for her to review at her convenience. And the answer for this one which I'll give now unless you have a different pedagogy for this. No, no, go ahead. All right. The answer would be B, you'd attempt to arrange to review her clinical records with her as soon as possible. So why did you pick this question as an example? So, so there's a couple of reasons I picked it. One is the, well, I was on, I was on the um, end of life task force uh, for writing questions, which also writes questions in this, this domain. Sure. And they're particularly hard to write because it's easy to write easy questions, but the goal is to write challenging questions. And there's a number of things that make it difficult to write questions in this area. One is that NBME does not write questions that are state 
specific. Uh, They've got to be applicable across the whole country. And so anything that touches on stuff where state law might intervene, like right to privacy, end of life decisions, living will, stuff like that, they basically have to avoid that unless it's already known to be universal. So that's one challenge. The other challenge is for a lot of ethics questions, the answer is almost always obvious, you know, unless you can come up with good distractors. And so that's the challenge, not writing the question and the correct answer, but rather finding a plausible uh, alternatives that students who are less comfortable with the topic might go for. So that's, that's one of the reasons I, I picked it. Another reason I picked it is it demonstrates something that's very common in terms of how these kinds of questions get written, which is you start with the possible answer choices. And you could imagine uh, some of these answer choices being the correct answer for a different case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, as an example of a bad set of answer choices, you might have things where maybe the first choice is a diagnosis and the second choice is a treatment and the third choice is something else. And semantically, they're very different. And the, the NBME and most exam writers try to avoid that. Instead, they try to have everything be very similar in terms of what kind of action it is you're asking the, uh, the physician to choose. And I think um, the NBME puts it as the answer choices should all exist on the same continuum. Correct. Uh, exactly. And, and a different way to think of this, if you, if you think of that idea of a continuum, uh, which expands and contracts, is you want them to be as close as possible, but, but distinctly different as opposed to being very different and, and far apart, but not so close that there's ambiguity as to which is the right answer. Sure. So if we look at this, some of the choices, obviously the correct choice, attempt to arrange to review of clinical re- records, really speaks to the ethical principle of autonomy, that as much as possible, you try to involve the patient in their own care and provide them with that information. May I interject here? So With these questions, I've often said that uh, there tends to be in a lot of uh, practice questions and the experience that people have on exams is this concept of a most attractive distractor, right? This one that is as close to the correct answer on that continuum uh, perhaps as possible, but is yet also distinct. And this, I think, is where students um, have, you know, the sort of experiences where they come out of the exam and they think, oh, was it A or B? And I think ethics in, in particular uh, is especially prone to this. And I, uh, if I had to offer an opinion, I would say the last answer choice, mm-hmm. immediately make copies of her medical record for her to review at her convenience is the one I'd be kind of torn between um, Mm -hmm. if I were in a guessing situation. Yep. And in fact, if you were to say this question was all about autonomy, that's the question that provides the most autonomy. And so it's in in some ways it is getting at the idea of what's the community standard of practice as opposed to what's a strictly single ethical principle approach. What's interesting is if you look at the same question in different countries, they would come up with different answers that would, and even if you go back to, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, the answer in the U.S. would be different. For psychiatric records, for a long time, uh, there was a feeling that having the patient look at their own record could do them harm. 
mm-hmm. uh, that they would too easily misinterpret it, that it would uh, undermine their uh, trust of the physician if they read something. So this is, this is not as straightforward and clear an answer as you might think. Um, and you're right, the last choice is the one that someone who's just thinking of this in terms of, oh, it's an autonomy question, they would, they would go immediately to that. The other principle it shows is that when these questions are written, they're really not trying to trick people. They're really trying to test that combination of both medical knowledge, or in this case, ethical knowledge, but also common sense. And so giving someone a copy of their chart there, there's problems with that because they could misinterpret it, uh, especially if we're talking about a psychiatric issue. And so the idea that instead you want to open up a dialogue with the patient is what would be considered more acceptable. And that's, so, that's how you would get to, uh, to choice B in this case. And then let me say to that, um, as, as people study things, and, and this is more of a general principle, I think, applicable even to other subjects, I, I read four choices here. Um, in, in this question, just for um, convenience on the audio. But uh, let's say you dropped the correct answer. And instead of the, attempting to arrange to review her clinical records with her as soon as possible, you replaced it uh, with a different answer or distractor. And you were left with three distractors and then immediately make copies of her medical record for her to review at her convenience it would seem that that would be another way to kind of a, approach this where that one is kind of correct, right? But the other one, when standing beside it, is the most correct. And that is why the beginning instructions on pretty much all the standardized uh, medical exams uh, advertise these as single best answer, right? Yep. And that is a distinction that's important because it's in medicine, it's medicine. It's, you know, we... They try to force the gray world of clinical medicine into kind of a black and white uh, binary kind of thing, um, but you really can't. And, and because of that, the continuum uh, may, may actually show that the scored correctly answer is just one of many correct answers to real-life uh, problems, perhaps. Yeah, what's fascinating about that is that if you, if you run this question or variations of this question by hundreds of people, you see some interesting changes when you change the distractors or if you change the right answer. Sometimes things that are not intuitive, like if you go to a single faculty member and say, well, write the greatest question in the world, yeah. they'll write what they think is the greatest question in the world. But then if you have hundreds of students look at that question and respond to it, you see interesting behaviors where sometimes a a distractor, an an incorrect choice, will, because of the way it's worded, redirect people to a different incorrect choice. And if you take that incorrect choice out, suddenly more people get the question right. Or you can see the opposite happen, Hmm. that by putting in a certain distractor, you thought you were making the question harder, but instead you somehow made it easier, that, that more people got it right because that incorrect choice somehow tune them into what the correct choice must be. Yes. And so I guess that is another way of helping, I think, decrease the anxiety of students who often feel like they're being tricked. And what they should know is that whether you're doing Kaplan, multiple choice questions, or UWorld, or the actual USMLE exam, 
is they're applying these, you know, analyses to these these sorts of metrics and and probably doing fancy algorithms or things you would know more about in clinical informatics than I do uh, to ensure that they're actually testing what they want to test, which is your knowledge and not your test-taking ability or extra kind of uh, knowledge factors. So, Yeah, in fact, it's almost a mantra with most testing organiz- licensure organizations to, to take away the things that make it a test-taking task. Right. Now, you could argue, well, anyone who's good at test-taking, that's a, some kind of measure of intelligence, and so maybe they're good at being doctors too. Um, but it's certainly not a pure way to uh, assess whether someone's going to be a good doctor. Or necessarily um, measurable, unless, I suppose, yeah. you <laughs> made well, IQ tests. Uh, yeah, in, in a way, yeah. that that's what you'd be saying. And you think about them and say, wait, is that really what I want? I want... You know, someone with a high IQ to be a doctor, we all, we all know. In fact, I've met people who <laughs> I would not want to be my doctor. Yes. Uh, yes. So in some ways, um, my exposure, and, and I, should, I should probably, you know, say right up front, I'm not going to expose, I don't have any secrets to expose about how NBME creates things. Most of what they do is either common sense or public knowledge. But what I would say, if you look at some of the training materials that are available, one of the things you pick up from that, uh, the, the materials they use to train people to write items, is that they really have an almost a session with removing anything that is a test-taking skill mm-hmm. from the question. And so, for example, going back to the answer choice piece, we can talk another day, I guess, about item analysis. But one of the things they would look for in, in the perfect question is regardless of how many people get the question right, the people who get the question wrong equally choose different choices. So all of the all the wrong choices are equally chosen. Uh, they're equally wrong. There's there's no one choice that stands out as being almost right or clearly wrong. So are uh, you are are you saying, for instance, ninety percent of people get the correct answer uh, scored correctly? They choose it, and that the other say. Uh, four choices, each of them are wrong at two and a half percent or something like that. Yeah, that would be the ideal. Okay. Or if it's, and is there a absolute or, well, I guess we, we should talk about item analysis. And I will say, uh, uh, Dr. Semino has um, agreed to come back on and uh, share more of his expertise with us. Um, and that would include looking into more of what item analysis means. And, you know, it's, it's, I think something that, that and uh, building by consensus and some of the other items that we had discussed via email may not be directly applicable to one's study or, uh, you know, one's actual taking the test, except that I think it can help demystify the process and uh, help people trust that, you know, you're not trying to be tricked and that although this is a high stakes exam a series, uh, it's still one that is doggedly trying to be fair. But sorry, did I interrupt you uh, right there? No, no but, uh, but actually I'll add on to what you just said something, which Please. is item analysis isn't going to tell you how to study better. But what it does tell you is something about what to do with advice you get. If you go to a faculty member and say, what do you think is going to be on the test? They can tell you what they would put on the test, but they don't know really what's on the test. And part of the reason for that is that the way NBME does this is they form committees. Uh, 
And the committees are actively editing the questions as a group, and they debate, you know, is this a good question? Is this appropriate or not? Um, and that's sort of the first pass. And actually, the second pass, there's, there's a committee for each topic, and then there's an overall committee for each exam. And so each item goes through this consensus process twice. And, you know, so if you could get five faculty members in a room and they all agreed that something's important, well, that's a pretty good chance that, that the MBME faculty would agree too, and it will be on the test. Yeah. And the reality is you could get five medical students together and do the same exercise, and they'll probably be just as accurate as the faculty would be. And, and I think that's why you, you pick up any, you know, let's say a review of physiology published by Kaplan versus one uh, published by McGraw-Hill. Uh, the, there's going to be significant overlap between uh, the content that's presented there and discussed. And, and, and that's why I think, you, you know, on this show, you'll, you'll hear me say or allude to things or others say, you know, like on the boards, be prepared you know, to answer this, that, or the other thing. And we're not saying, oh, we we know this is going to be on the board exams, but in discussing with medical students and, and residents and other faculty, you know, the things that they're teaching or, you know, new research in a given area, uh, there does sort of become a consensus, kind of like a, a, a knowledge or medical zeitgeist almost that that kind of compels people to cover uh, similar items across uh, different projects. So it is fascinating, but mm-hmm. uh, very fascinating. I'm so glad I don't have to take a step one ever again. <laughs> or step <laughs> Me two. too. Or step three. It's very nice. All right. That's it for part one. Stay tuned next week for part two, where we dive a little bit more deeply into Dr. Semino's own educational background and the whole process of creating a standardized exam in medical education. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Sam and Alex from Magic Man for letting us use the track Out of Mind off their 2014 album Before the Waves, which GQ described as 12 tracks of alt joy. To hear more, check them out at magicmanmusic.com or follow them on facebook.com slash magicmanmusic. As always, thanks for listening and sharing Inside the Boards with your friends. Inside the Boards is not affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names or other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies. All content discussed is for educational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice.